You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. We've all heard stories about the spirits of loved ones visiting us in the night. It might have even happened to you or someone you know. It usually goes something like this. A sleeping person will suddenly awaken in the small hours of the morning and see a silent apparition of a loved one standing before them. It will linger for a moment and then vanish. Uncertain about what just happened, the witness will check the time, then attribute the strange experience to a dream. That is, until they get a phone call the next morning and learn that the person they saw, a person who might be hundreds or thousands of miles away, had died that same night at the exact same time that the apparition had appeared. This experience is often thought to be the loved one saying their last goodbye, and while it's certainly unsettling, it's reassuring in a way suggesting that perhaps the deceased had some sort of agency or control even after death, and that love can transcend all boundaries. But what if the ghost you see doesn't belong to a family member or friend? What if the ghost you see is you? You're listening to Fireside Canada, my podcast about Canadian legends, lies, and lore. I'm David Williams. Tonight, a few ghost stories from Nova Scotia with an intriguing twist. The ghosts belong to people who are still alive. Have you ever heard of a person who met themselves? Or rather, have you ever heard of a person running into a stranger who looked just like them? Maybe someone who could have been their long-lost sibling, or more dramatically, their evil twin? Well, there's a good chance you have. We live in an increasingly interconnected world within the age of smartphones and social media when almost everyone has an online presence, and stories of unlikely meetings between strangers who look alike don't just happen often, they're routinely recorded and shared with the world. When two similar-looking men wound up sitting next to each other on the same flight, they snapped a selfie and made news around the world. Even Prime Minister Justin Trudeau made headlines in January 2019, not because of something he did on the world stage or in Parliament, but because of his curious resemblance to an Afghani wedding singer from a TV talent show. But there was a time when seeing your double or doppelganger wasn't just an odd encounter. When the person you saw wasn't another individual who happened to look like you, it was you, or at least an apparition of you. There was a time, not so long ago, if you caught a glimpse of your double somewhere in the world, it often meant one thing. Death would soon follow. The first thing I remember about that night is the moon. It was cold and bright and full so the whole ocean opened up beneath it and the road and rooftops and even the trees shone blue in its light. Ben and I had just left Burke's store with a fresh pack of cigarettes for him and a couple of drinks between us. It was the only shop within a good 10 or 15 miles and it occupied the lower half of a beat-up farmhouse that backed onto a turnip farm. It sat on the north side of the street overlooking the bay and I remember the white painted boards were nearly stripped clean from the wind and salt and wet that came up off the water. 
Standing outside, framed in a rectangle of light from the window, we were a patch of gold in a sea of blue. Ben lit a cigarette, and I waved goodnight to Burke through the window as he locked the door and clicked off the light, and we were left standing only in moonlight. We went across the street and sat on the bank looking north toward the store, watching Burke's shadow slowly shuffle behind the curtains of the second-story window before that light, too, was extinguished. It was a beautiful night, and it seemed a shame to part ways just yet, so we sat and talked. I remember the orange tip of Ben's cigarette hanging in the blue stillness, lighting up the lines of his face as he took one last drag, then flicked it to the pavement. When the cigarette hit the ground, there was a spray of orange embers, and then suddenly a sound, like a garden hoe hitting a rock somewhere far out in Burke's field, and we leaned forward and peered past the darkened house and dooryard and into the grass that grew about waist high. Then this thing... I, I don't know what else to call it, came crawling out of the grass on its hands and knees on the southeast side of the house. We couldn't see much, just a hunched shadow barely visible against the road and the grass and the sky. Then it slowly unfolded and stretched upward, and we could see now that it was a man, or at least it had the shape of a man, standing at the edge of the grass. It moved out of sight, and we sat there frozen and silent. Now, Ben and I had known each other a long time, and our friendship had come to the point where we knew what the other was thinking and few words were needed. Besides, what was there to say? I imagine we were both thinking hard, trying to comprehend what we had seen, and listening hard, trying to confirm it with our senses. You also have to understand that we were still young, barely in our 20s, and our curiosity still trumped our sense of self-preservation. I felt this intense need to stay there and see if it came back. It did. This time, it came halfway across the road and stopped. Now this was enough to convince me. There was something there. A silhouette on the moonlit road, watching us just as we watched it. It went back into the darkness, and without taking my eyes from the point where it vanished, I finally said to Ben, Did you see that? He did, but neither of us moved. Moments later, here it comes again, shambling halfway across the road, then back, but this time, instead of vanishing completely, it went beneath one of the apple trees that lined the road and just stood there. We could still see it, half hidden by the shade of the leaves and branches. A sudden breeze blew in from the water and shook the trees, and there were dull thuds all around us as the apples hit the ground, but the thing didn't move or react. It just waited. I was getting nervous. Ben, I said, and I was surprised how shaky my voice sounded. I've got to get home. Problem was, I lived on one side of the store and Ben lived on the other, both just a few houses away, but we decided quickly to head to his place since it was in the opposite direction of whatever that thing was. There was no attempt to play it cool or keep calm, we were scared, so on the count of three, we leapt from the ground and ran as fast as we could. We reached Ben's house and risked a look behind us, but there was nothing but a path of light and our shadows, drawn by the moon behind us in the southwest. We took a minute to catch our breath and talk about what we saw. What was it? Neither of us knew, but we had both seen it. Maybe it was a prank. Well, we couldn't say for sure, but it didn't seem like one. 
Our courage built as we talked. We forgot our fear, and within minutes we decided we wanted to see this thing again, to confirm that it wasn't a trick and maybe learn exactly what it was. We knew that if we didn't at least try to investigate, we'd spend the rest of our lives wondering and kicking ourselves for being such cowards. Let's walk back, I finally said, just for a few minutes. I'm not afraid of this thing. Now, I knew full well that I was afraid, and I think Ben did too, but I also knew that I could control it if we stuck together. There was strength in numbers. We started back to Burke's, and soon we saw it. The thing was walking down the middle of the road, coming to meet us. I said to Ben, don't leave me, and continued my approach. I wanted to touch it. Now, I, I, I know that sounds crazy, but I thought that was the only way to be sure that what we were seeing was real. When we were about 20 feet or so from the thing, I said to Ben again, don't leave me. And I kept walking until I stood directly beside it. I slowly turned my head to examine it, and my heart stopped. Being so close now and with the light of the moon shining down on us, I could finally make out its features, but it didn't make any sense. It was as tall as an average man. It wore black pants with blotches of dirt on the knees from crawling through the field and grass, and black suspenders over a white button-down shirt and tie. Its head was like a skull, completely bare and wrapped in tight, gray, papery skin that glowed a faint blue in the moonlight. Its eyes were sunken, but I could still make out two bright and penetrating pools of black. It was as deathly still as I was. Strangely, I didn't feel any fear, and I lifted a hand and reached toward it. I was about to touch it when Ben, who was just a few steps behind me, suddenly screamed and ran. An icy chill ran through my entire body and I now suddenly felt that fear again in the pit of my stomach. Ben had left me. I staggered back a few steps, turned on my heels, and ran after him. The thing followed. I could hear it behind me, and I pushed harder, feeling my lungs burning, pushing my legs to their limit. I caught up with Ben and passed him on the road, then looked over my shoulder. The thing was about 20 feet back and getting closer. We arrived at Ben's property line and jumped the fence. The thing cut across the field, trying to head us off. It was closing fast, kicking up a blue cloud of dirt as it ran through the field. We reached the door of the house, and Ben had his key at the ready. I watched the path behind us as he fumbled with the lock, and the plants in his field bend and shift as it made its way toward us. It's coming, it's coming, I said, getting frantic now, expecting to see its terrible head emerge from the field at any moment. A hand grabbed my shoulder, and I yelped as I was pulled backward. I stumbled into Ben's house, and he slammed the door. We took a moment to catch our breath, and then Ben peered out from the doorway. I think it's gone, he said. I scanned the yard and street and saw nothing, until my eyes came to a stone wall looming just beyond the porch light. There it was now perched on top of a pole jutting out from the wall. We stood in that doorway and watched it for what felt like an hour as it crouched atop that pole, unmoving. The moon set shortly after midnight, and before long, the entire yard was black. 
It was impossible to tell if the thing was still out there, and neither of us wanted to venture into the darkness to check. We secured the door, turned on all the lights, and huddled in the center of the front room. Eventually, our adrenaline waned, and exhaustion took us. Morning came, and the thing was gone. With the courage that comes with a new day, I stepped outside and felt the sun's golden warmth on my face. Then I investigated the stone wall and pole. I reached up, and wet and rotting wood crumbled into my hand. That pole wouldn't have supported a bird, let alone whatever man-sized thing had crawled out of Burke's field that night. I tried telling Ben, but he didn't want to talk about it. Less than a year went by, and Ben got sick. The cancer killed him a few months later. Though he never wanted to talk about that night, he always swore that the thing we saw was his forerunner, the harbinger of his death. I was by his side through everything. I saw his pain and watched helplessly as his body gave out. One night, close to the end, I sat up with him like usual, and though he must have been in agony, he was peaceful, serene, painless. He told me that the thing had come to him the night before, put its hands upon him, and made his hurting stop. I was with him the night Ben died. Moonlight streamed through the window and onto his bed, and I was struck by the way the light hit his bare head and caused deep shadows to pool on his face. Here, on the edge of death, Ben looked exactly like the thing we had seen that night. He was getting tired, and I said goodnight one last time. Then I walked home in blue moonlight, knowing that, when the moon set, it would take my friend with it. So you may have guessed that wasn't my personal story, and you'd be right, but I wanted to share it with you, and I think that this kind of tale is best told from a first-person perspective. I've never had a friend named Ben who died of cancer, and luckily, I've never been chased by a terrifying skeleton monster after it crawled out of a turnip field. But apparently, someone has. This story was shared with Helen Creighton, perhaps Canada's most famous folklorist, by a Mr. A.B. Thorne of Carsdale, Nova Scotia. In the summer of 1947, while collecting folklore for the National Museum of Canada, Creighton received a tip that Mr. Thorne had a singularly interesting story that she should hear. A story, they said, that no one else in his family would discuss. She went on to record Mr. Thorne's tale and made it a part of her famous collection of Nova Scotian ghost stories, Blue Nose Ghosts. A few decades later, the story was adapted by Alvin Schwartz in his classically creepy kids' book, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark. A. B. Thorne was in his 60s in 1947, and his story occurred when he and his friends were in their 20s, meaning that their encounter with the thing happened in or around 1907. For my retelling of the story, I wanted to ensure all of the key elements were there, but I also wanted to modernize it a tiny bit to help sell the first-person narrative. 
so I changed a few small details. Thorne's friend, Ben, in my story, was actually named Joe Holmes, and he died of tuberculosis rather than cancer. The two friends had gone to the local post office, not the local store, at around 10 at night to mail a letter. Like many rural post offices back then, it was located inside someone's house. The thing they met on the road was indeed dressed in black pants, a white shirt, and black suspenders, but instead of a tie, it was wearing what Thorne called a hard bosom front. That's a false shirt front that would be worn with a tuxedo or similar men's evening wear. Everything else, the thing crawling out of the grass by a turnip field, the three times it came halfway across the road, the falling apples, the skeletal appearance, the chase, the thing perching atop a rotten pole, those are all part of the original narrative. And it's these bizarre details that really set this tale apart from other stories about similar phenomena, what Helen Creighton called forerunners. While heading back from town one day, I met myself along the way. I did not nod nor wave nor smile, though I walked with me a while. Instead, the paths we took aligned, with me ahead and I behind. It would have been a sight to see myself in step in front of me. There was no answer to my call as I approached the graveyard wall, and despite my pleas to stop and wait, I saw me pass on through the gate. I called again, but I was gone, beyond the graves, across the lawn. I watched me fade through grass and stone and left me there, unseen, alone. I could not follow where I led, and so I came back home instead. I haven't seen myself since then, but I know well we'll meet again. I know I'm waiting there for me in that old graveyard by the sea. I saw me go where I belong. I'll be there too before too long. These lines were inspired by the story of Captain Charles McConnell, a master mariner and sea captain from Port Medway, Nova Scotia. According to family and local folklore, the captain was walking home from town one evening when he saw an apparition, a duplicate of himself, walking ahead of him. He called out, but the apparition didn't answer. Instead, it turned off the road and entered the cemetery. Frightened by what he just saw, Captain McConnell hurried home where he lamented to his wife, I am not long for this world. Two weeks later, he contracted pneumonia and died. McConnell's is just one of seven similar stories found within the pages of Helen Creighton's book, Blue Nose Ghosts. But the story of the soon-to-be-deceased seeing their own apparition isn't exclusive to Canada. The Germans call it a doppelganger, but over time, that term has come to mean an actual evil twin or some other malevolent spirit that might be attempting to steal your identity. The Irish have another term. They call it a fetch, while Finnish folklore labels it an etiainen. But the Nova Scotians who told their stories to Helen Creighton didn't have a term for this specific apparition. Instead, seeing a double of yourself is just one kind of forerunner, as they called it, 
a word that Helen Creighton defines as a supernatural warning of approaching events usually connected with impending death. The folkloric explanation that I've seen most often suggests that these sightings occur when death is already close at hand, and our spirit detaches or loosens from its corporeal form a little too soon. It's said that, sometimes, we might catch a glimpse of our own spirit, now tenuously attached and ready to shed our bodies like a snake sheds its skin. Thus, this temporary glimpse of our spirit outside ourselves is a signal that death is coming soon. It must be terrifying to see yourself. Imagine seeing your doppelganger like Captain McConnell did, your spiritual double walking ahead of you and into the cemetery. You would know, based on the folklore you've heard your entire life, that the end is near. You might feel perfectly healthy, you might be in the prime of your life, but it doesn't matter. As the captain said, you are not long for this world. It's the cruelest reminder that death is something we can't control. The majority of doppelganger stories found in Blue Nose Ghosts are quite simple, some no more than a paragraph, and they follow the same basic structure. A certain person in a certain town saw their apparition walking beside him or ran into themselves along the road. They knew that this encounter was a forerunner for their death, so they told their story to their loved ones and to the people in town, and died suddenly a short time later. But there are also three tales that go against that grain of the classic doppelganger story, some a little more than others. One comes from Tangier Island, east of Halifax. It tells how a little girl was looking out her window one bright, moonlit night when she saw a woman looking back from one of the property's outbuildings. The girl said that this ghostly woman was an image of her older self, and she seemed to have a baby in her arms. The girl called her sister to the window, and they both stared in disbelief. Fifteen years later, when the girl was all grown up, she died with a baby in her arms, just as the forerunner had predicted. Most doppelganger stories end with a death within a year, but interestingly, this girl had 15 more years of life before death would take her. There's no mention of what happened to the baby. The second story is attributed to a man named Henry Awalt of Seabright, who met himself on a back road. He died just a few months later. Now that sounds like a pretty common doppelganger story, except for one bizarre detail. Henry was about six feet tall, but noted that the apparition he encountered was much, much taller. So tall, in fact, that Henry said he could have walked right between its legs. Just to add a little more creepiness to the story, his nightmarishly tall double was also carrying a lantern to light his way in the dark of night. Finally, the third story is the same story I told you at the beginning of this episode, The Thing of Annapolis County. So let's analyze the story of The Thing. The thing that Mr. Thorne and his friend encountered that night was, according to both men, a forerunner that foretold Joe's death. And Mr. Thorne was struck by how his friend, in the last days of his life, resembled the strange, skeletal man they had encountered. Now that definitely sounds like a doppelganger, but then I've never heard a story where a sharply dressed doppelganger crawls out of a turnip field on its hands and knees. Nor have I heard of doppelgangers coyly walking back and forth across the street before actually physically chasing people down a street and across a field. 
Usually, doppelgangers and other ghostly forerunners are far more passive. They tend to be more of a vision than an entity, and often ignore their human audience entirely, as Captain McConnell's did when he called out to it in vain. So the thing of Annapolis County seems to inhabit a space between ghost and monster. It looks and walks like a person, but it also crawls on its hands and knees like an animal. It strolls spookily down moonlit roads and seems to passively ignore those who approach, but it also chases after them when they run away in terror. It moves at an average speed, seems to be an average height, and wears the average clothes of a person, but can somehow perch atop a pole so rotten that it crumbles to the touch. In fact, if the thing didn't resemble the storyteller's dying friend, it wouldn't have much in common with a doppelganger at all. So maybe the resemblance was just circumstantial. One would imagine that a person wasting away from a terrible disease could look very similar to what Thorne described. But if it wasn't a doppelganger and it wasn't a hoax or some crazy person, then what was it? Some modern readers might suggest it was the angel of death, just wearing contemporary clothing rather than a black robe and carrying a sickle. In some ways, it bears a resemblance to Anku, a personification of death found in Breton, Cornish, Welsh, and Norman folklore. According to those legends, he appears as either a man or a skeleton. He protects the graveyard and collects the lost souls of his land. But Anku is usually seen driving a carriage pulled by four black horses, and I've never heard of any personification of death so undignified that it would spend its time crawling around turnip fields. Eh, maybe he was just having a bad night. Another idea is that the thing was some sort of monster, but while you could expect to encounter a terrible creature crawling on all fours through a moonlit field, you wouldn't exactly expect it to be dressed in a shirt and suspenders. Now there's also one other fact that argues against this thing being a monster, and it supports the idea that it was instead exclusively linked to Joe Holmes. It has never been seen again. Despite being featured in one of Canada's best-selling and highly regarded ghost story collections, and despite being a well-loved piece of folklore for over half a century, I haven't been able to find any reports or stories about additional sightings. As far as I can tell, no one has encountered a creature or entity with quite the same description, or in quite the same way, as that one summer night over a century ago. Whatever the thing of Annapolis County was, ghost or monster, forerunner or fauna, the story remains one of the most striking in Nova Scotia's folklore. It reminds us that we still don't have all the answers, that life is precious and we need to live for each day, and that death could be waiting for us just around the corner or just across the street. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and for joining me in becoming part of a Canadian folk tradition. Now that you know the story, share it. And remember, if you're ever walking down a moonlit road and see a familiar figure approaching, don't look too closely. Some things are better left unknown. Fireside Canada is written and recorded by me, David Williams. Sound design and mixing is by Ryan Clark. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving this podcast a positive review. 
If you want to help even further, you can support me through my website. Every little bit helps to keep the fire burning and the Library of Legends growing. Learn more at firesidecanada.ca.